You're listening to a podcast by New Heights Church. We hope you're encouraged to glorify, grow, and go. All right. Uh, for those of you guys who, who might not be familiar with me, my name is Jeremy. I am one of the two Jeremy's here. I'm also one of the pastors um, of New Heights Church here. And uh, if, if I haven't gotten a chance to get to know you yet and meet you, um, come and steal me after the service. Um, I'd love to, to get to know each and uh, every one of you guys a little bit more. Um, before, we, before we dive into the service, um, one more quick announcement. If, if you have children between fifth and eighth grade, we have a youth group that meets on Sunday nights. Um, and one of the things that we are doing next week after the first service at around 1020 to 1030, we are going to be taking the, uh, the youth group there to Kings Island. Um, and so if you have a kid who's between fifth and eighth grade, and that's something that, that they want to join in on and be a part of, um, get with me, get with Andy Woods after the service and let us know um, so we can make sure to get that ticket um, purchased for you guys. So um, get with one of us after the service if that is you guys. Um, so this morning we are going to uh, jump into the book of Mark, continuing our sermon series through the gospel of Mark there. Um, and so we're going to be in chapter 14 this morning. We're going to be uh, reading verses 12 through 21. And so if you want to go ahead and open up your Bible or turn on your Bible and make your way there, we're going to read from there here in a minute. And what we're going to be discussing this morning is the Passover meal. Um, the idea that the Jews would, would come together and celebrate this meal known as the Passover. Um, so we see Jesus and his disciples uh, partaking in this. And we're going to unpack the, the importance of that meal. What all did it symbolize? Um, and we're also going to be looking at the betrayal of Jesus this morning through Judas. And so before we dive into the text, let's go ahead and, uh, and pray this morning and ask for God's help. God, you are good and we are unworthy to be called saints, but yet you died for us anyways. God, Scripture says that while we were sinners, while we were enemies against you, you died for us. Lord, I pray that as we open up your word, as we read from uh, the Gospel of Mark here, that you teach us what you have to teach us, that you convict us where we need convicted. Lord, as we've, we've all studied before in some point in time the Passover meal and what it represents, God, I pray that you speak to us this morning and teach us something new. Show us how we can love you better. Show us how we can serve others better. Um, and mold us more into the image of your son. Shame we pray. Amen. All right, so let's go ahead and uh, get started with that. So Mark chapter 14, we're going to go ahead and read the first couple verses, starting in verse 12. It says, And on the first day of unleavened bread, when they sacrificed the Passover lamb, his disciples said to him, Where will you have us go and prepare for you to eat the Passover? And he sent out two of his disciples, and he said to them, Go into the city, and you will find a man carrying a jar of water. He will meet you. Follow him. Wherever he enters, you say to the master of the house, The teacher says, Where is my guest room, where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? He will show you a large upper room, furnished and ready. There, prepare for us. And the disciples set out and went into the city and found it just as he had told them. And they prepared the Passover. And so we have here the disciples and Jesus preparing for this Passover meal. Uh, the time frame in this would be in the Jewish calendar of a month known as Nisan, around the 15th day, which in our time is somewhere between March and April. Um, and so Jesus tells them to go into the city and start to prepare this Passover. And so looking at what is the Passover, what does it represent, what's the importance of it, um, the Passover was a meal 
that was celebrated, that was remembered, as they remembered the Passover that happened back in Egypt during the Exodus. So if you read Exodus chapters 1 through 15, it discusses and explains the fact that Israel was in captivity for 400 years. The Old Testament, you have this constant theme take place. You have Israel go into bondage, into captivity. You have Jesus, God, Yahweh, saving them out of their captivity. And it's a cycle that repeats. And so at this point, they're celebrating and remembering the exodus that happened in Egypt with Moses and Pharaoh. You guys have heard the story of the ten plagues. So you have Moses going to Pharaoh and, and pleading with Pharaoh, let my people go. You see Pharaoh declines and declines all the way up until a tenth plague happens. This tenth plague, if you know the story, is the death of the firstborn of everyone in Egypt. And so you have God telling his people in Egypt to sacrifice a lamb, to take the blood of that lamb and spread it over the doorposts. And in the nighttime, the death angel would pass through Egypt and kill the firstborn of every family that did not have the blood on the doorposts. And this represented the fact that you were covered by the blood. Right? This was a foreshadow of the one true sacrificial lamb, which was Jesus that we're going to see this morning. And so this would be celebrated every year. And if you were a good Jew, one of the things you would do is you would travel to Jerusalem. Um, that was the requirement to partake in this meal in Jerusalem. So Jerusalem would be packed at this time. And so the reason they celebrated this is for two reasons. One, to remember how God has brought his people out of bondage and out of slavery. And two, they would take it out of the hope that their God would continue to save his people out of slavery. So at this point in history, you have uh, the Jews who are looking at the Old Testament. They're seeing the prophecy of this Messiah that was to come. And they interpret it in a way that they were looking for this earthly reign of the Messiah. The Messiah is going to come and save them from the hands of Rome. And so oftentimes that is what they are celebrating here this morning is that our God is going to continue to save his people out of slavery. In church today, we celebrate the same thing. We celebrate a, uh, what we call communion. So in the Old Testament, you have the Passover. In the New Testament, you have communion. Um, and that is that we, just as the Old Testament saints looked forward to the coming of a Messiah, we get to look backwards to the finished work of the Messiah. That is that Jesus' death and burial and resurrection. And so we see here soon the very idea that Jesus is going to be the true one and for all sacrificial lamb that's slain for the sins of his people. That whosoever is covered by the blood of the true lamb of God will be forgiven. And so just as the Passover uh, celebrated the Hebrews' deliverance from Egypt, the blood on the doorpost uh, protected those inside from death, the blood of Christ shed protects all who believe from the second death. John the, Baptist, John the Baptist puts it in John 1.29 and says, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And so as I was reading the Passover, as I was looking up different commentaries, studies on it, the, the Jewish history tradition that they would do, um, I was amazed at, at how detailed and how serious this meal truly was. I, I never looked into all of, the, um, all of the detail that went into actually taking the Passover. And so to prepare this meal, households would often take days, sometimes even weeks, to prepare for this. There were certain things that they would do. There was a certain way that they would do them. One of the things that they would do is their requirement was to get rid of any form of leavened bread within the house. 
The reasoning behind this is you look at the Passover and the Exodus back in Egypt, you have them eating unleavened bread as they were eating in haste, fleeing out of Egypt of captivity. And so as they would, as they would prepare for this meal, they would scrub down and clean the entire house. And lastly, after doing this for days, potentially even weeks, they would take a feather and they would take a candle, or in today's terms, a flashlight and a dustpan, and they would finish cleaning the entire house. Even after taking a feather to clean the house, they would then recite a small paragraph to nullify any potential leavened bread that was left in the house. The paragraph that they would recite would say, all leaven or anything leaven within my possession that I have not found, that I have not seen, that I have not removed, and about which I am unaware shall be considered not an ownerless as the dust of the earth. When we look at the meal that the two disciples had to prepare, we see symbolism in that as well as what they took. So first of all, you see a lamb that was taken to the temple to be sacrificed. The blood poured on the altar as an offering. And this lamb was to remind them of how their houses were protected by the application of blood when the angel of death passed through Egypt. You see unleavened bread at the meal to remind them of the bread that they ate in haste as they escaped from slavery. During this meal, you would have a bowl of salt water to remind them of the tears that were shed in Egypt and out of the waters of the Red Sea in which they miraculously passed through to safety. You would have a collection of bitter herbs to remind them the bitterness of slavery that they had in Egypt. There would be a paste called Cheriseth, which was a mixture of apples and dates and pomegranates and nuts to remind them of the clay that was used to make the bricks in Egypt. Inside of this paste were sticks of cinnamon to remind them of the straw with which the bricks had been made. During this Passover meal, there would be four cups of wine that would be consumed. It was, drink, it was drinking at different stages throughout the meal to remind them of the four promises that God had made to Israel back in Exodus chapter 6, verse 6 and 7. As it says, Say to the sons of Israel, I am the Lord, and I will bring you out un, uh, from under the burdens of the Egyptians. I will deliver you from their bondage. I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great judgments. Then I will take you from my people. I will be your God and you shall know that I am the Lord your God who has brought you out under the burdens of the Egyptians. And as I look at the detail, the preparation, how seriousness this meal was taken and prepared for year after year, I begin to think on my own life and think, how serious do I take the atonement of Christ? Do I come here week in, week out, celebrate communion because it's out of duty, out of obligation, it's just what we do? Or do I seriously understand the weight of what has happened to our Savior? We've discussed already how the Passover meal is a direct correlation to what we celebrate here, week in and week out with communion. So as we look at Scripture... So we look at this Passover, are we called to go to this extreme when we take communion? No, we don't see it in scripture that we have a clear command to do it on the 15th day of a certain month in a certain city in a certain way. However, we're called to do it as often as we do in remembrance of Jesus. But scripture does give us clear command to take communion very seriously. So as we look at this Jewish tradition of taking the Passover, as they would rid their house of leaven, Leaven not only symbolized the idea of escaping in haste, but it also symbolized the idea of not being puffed up with pride in your souls. 
It was the process symbolized their putting the way of their sin. So just as serious as the Jewish tradition was taken, Scripture gives us clear command not to take communion in an unworthy manner. So yes, church, we do. We take out the leaven in our own life. We repent of our failures. We repent of our shortcomings. And I hope and pray that each week as we come forward and we take communion, that we repent and we celebrate the victory that Jesus accomplished for us on his death on the cross. As we continue to look at the events that happened in this, test, uh, in this text, the historical significance to what is going on, we discussed the Passover being something that would be celebrated each year, that the Jews would, would, would migrate back to Jerusalem to celebrate this meal. And so the city of Jerusalem would be absolutely packed at this time. We see Jesus sending two disciples into the city to prepare. And we can get from other texts, other gospel accounts, that the two that were sent into the city were Peter and John. These two were sent with a mission by Jesus to go prepare a meal, to go and get the lamb, take it to the temple, have it sacrificed, to find a location so we can enjoy a Passover meal. And so as this town, as this city would be packed at this time, one, one author named Alfred Edersheim wrote on the matter to explain how um, how packed the city was. He wrote, A census was created in order to convince Nero of the importance of Jerusalem in the Jewish nation. The number of lambs that were slain during the Passover meal was found to be 256,000. And at the lowest computation of 10 people per sacrificial lamb, this would put a population around 2.5 million. Or as the historical records declare it, 2.7 million. These computations being derived from official historical documents can scarcely have been much exaggerated. Indeed, Josephus expressly guards himself against this charge. And so Jesus gives the disciple this mission, this command to go into the city, and he gives them a sign on how do we find this place to do communion, to, do, to enjoy the Passover. And his sign was when you go into the city, you're going to find a guy carrying a jar of water. Right? Sounds easy enough. 2.7 million people, 200 and some thousand lambs that's going to be sacrificed, and you just got to find that one guy carrying the jar of water, right? Easy enough. Uh, in these times, however, you would, not, you would not see a man carrying a jar of water. This would be the job of, of a woman or a servant in these days, and so this would be something that would stand out to the two disciples. Um, the fact that Jesus, in some way, shape, or form, whether sovereignly planned it out or planned it out ahead of time, helps quite a bit. So we see Jesus, as we unpack this text, as we look at the other gospel accounts, um, it appears that Jesus is keeping what is going on here somewhat secretive. See, Jesus knows that Judas is planning to betray him, and so he keeps the location of the secret. He doesn't tell the disciples exactly where to go. He almost gives them codes, if you will. Jesus doesn't share in the location. In fact, when you read the text, it says that the two disciples that went in, when they found the master of the house, they didn't even mention Jesus' name. Rather, they said, the teacher has sent us and needs um, his guest room, if you will. And so we see either here, Jesus has sovereignly worked out and planned out his will to happen, to find this man, or this could potentially, as, as some people believe, um, could be someone that Jesus actually knew and borrowed their house and had it planned out ahead of time. As far as what day this truly is, there are different opinions between the four Gospels that we have. You have the three synoptic Gospels, and then you have the Gospel of John, and both of them come to a different opinion on when this day actually occurred. 
One commentary suggests that the implication of the Synoptic Gospels is that Jesus was crucified on the day after Passover and that the meal was the day before. The Gospel of John seems to say that Jesus was crucified on the day of Passover itself as the Passover lamb. Another commentator wrote, furthermore, in the matter, there is a conflict between this verse and the account in the Gospel of John where Jesus was crucified on the preparation day of the Passover. There have been a number of attempts to reconcile the synoptic accounts with the John account. The best, in my opinion, as this commentator wrote, holds that none of the Gospels have a strict chronological view as a high priority. We know this to be uh, particularly true in the Gospel of John. As we read the book of John, John is overwhelming, overwhelmingly theological rather than chronological. The gospel appears uh, to place Jesus' crucifixion concurrent with the sacrifices of, of the lambs as a theological statement that Jesus is the once and for all time lamb of God, sacrifice for mankind. And so we see in verse 16 this task given to the disciples. We already discussed all of the work, the preparation, the time, the energy that was, that was spent in preparing this meal that the two disciples had to go and prepare for the disciple, the other disciples and Jesus to come and celebrate. But this meal was much more than the Passover. It was much more than, than the exodus of, of his people in Egypt. It was the fact that Jesus was going to be slain here soon. That Jesus was everything that the Old Testament talked about. The disciples don't get this at this point. And so as we look at the the hard work that these disciples put into to prepare for the fellowship and the remembrance of what their father, what God has done. Church, we have an obligation as well. Just as disciples went to prepare the Passover, we ought to be paving the way for others to be here to enjoy a meal that we call communion, to celebrate the fact that God sent his son and died for us and that through that we have eternal life. Jesus explains the work that we are called to do in the book of Matthew as he says, Go and teach all nations of the gospel the good news. And so the meal that is being prepared, the meal that is being enjoyed this evening, that's celebrated by Jews, is now celebrated by all who are in Christ. Let's jump to the second point of the text, which is the betrayal of Jesus. So turning back to Mark 14, verse 17. It says, And when it was evening, he came with the twelve, and as they were reclining at the table and eating, Jesus said, Truly I say to you, one of you will betray me, one who is eating with me. They began to be sorrowful and to say to him one after another, Is it I? And he said to them, It is one of the twelve, one who is dipping bread into the dish with me. For the Son of Man goes as it is written of him, but woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he had not been born. And so we see during this meal, this prediction of Judas' betrayal of Jesus. And we see implications that we could pull from the text, both theological truth and practical living. And so in the middle of their meal, you see Jesus drop this bomb on the disciples, if you will. That there's a traitor in the midst. That one of the disciples is going to betray him. As the disciples began to question and ask, Jesus explains uh, more specifically, it's going to be one of the twelve, which actually indicates that there are more than the twelve disciples here partaking in the Passover meal. 
And so these, the disciples begin to question and wonder and try to figure out who the other person might be. The other accounts and the other gospels even suggest that at this point, the disciples begin to get prideful and puff themselves up on the matter, making arguments that it would never be me that would do such a thing. We know from reading this text, we know from the following verses that the individual that Jesus is referring to is none other than Judas Iscariot. And so let's take a second to consider Judas. Judas was one of the 12 disciples for three years Judas has spent time watching Jesus, listening to his teaching. He saw the tenderness of Jesus' compassion and love. He has seen water turned into wine. He has seen blind people receive their sight. He has seen lame people made to walk, deaf ears opened, mute tongues loosed, seen people who was demon-possessed delivered. He has seen the dead raised to life. He was present with Jesus when Jesus called forth Lazarus from the grave. He saw lepers immediately healed from flesh-rotting disease. He helped pass out loaves and fish when Jesus miraculously fed the multitudes. He witnessed Jesus walking on the water and simply commanding the wind and obeys to obey him. He heard demons confess that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. Regardless of all that this man has been a part of over the past three years, Judas not only turned from Christ, but he willingly sold him out for 30 pieces of silver, which is about a month's wage. One commentator to try to um, potentially put into perspective what Judas could potentially be thinking at this time um, wrote, perhaps it was because Judas truly did believe Jesus was the Messiah. And that's the reason that he did what he did. Perhaps he was trying to force Jesus' hand. So Judas took matters into his own hands by, by, by betraying Jesus to his accusers. We don't really know exactly why. We can only speculate at this point. The preponderance of evidence, however, seems to indicate that Judas felt that if he could somehow force a confrontation between Jesus and Rome, perhaps an all-out revolution would occur with Jesus leading the Jewish opposition perhaps even calling legions of angels to overthrow Rome. It could have been that Jesus thought nothing could really hurt Jesus. In any case, we see in the text, Judas has a victory theology which did not allow for the cross. And so in this story, in this part of the, the, the Passover meal, where Judas betrays Jesus, I believe we can see some of the strongest arguments for a couple theological doctrines that we hold to in all of Scripture. We see in the text, it's clear. There is no amount of intellectual knowledge, there is no amount of experience that one can have that can make a dead person choose life. We hold to this idea and we preach this idea of a, a theological term known as total depravity. And we see it none other in Judas himself here more than anywhere else. All that this guy had been a part of, all that he witnessed, if there's anyone in history that could somehow choose Christ in and of themselves based on intellect and experience, it would have been Judas. And so we see here in the story at the climax of this, we see the seriousness that sin has in our life. We see the weight of sin. We see our inability to do anything about it. 
And as we look at Judas, we're reminded of our own sin. We're reminded of our own life. And when we understand the gravity, the seriousness of our sin nature, the inability to do anything in and of ourself, as Roman puts it, we are dead in sin. We come to the cross of grace, humbled in at all that Christ would die for us sinners. That he would be the sacrificial lamb, willingly slain to purchase us by his blood. Romans tells us that we are dead in our sins. No one seeks after God. We are enemies against God. We are children of wrath. We are sons of disobedience. And the way scripture puts us that while we were sinners, Christ died for us. The book of John chapter six says, but there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning who those were who did not believe and who it was who would betray him. And he said to them, this is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted to him by the Father. After this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. So Jesus said to the 12, do you want to go away as well? Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. And we have believed and come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Another big thing to point out in the text as we, as we look at the other accounts and the other Gospels, we see the service that Jesus has with his disciples during this Passover meal. And so we see Jesus' example of what true service looks like. Although Christ knew exactly what was going on, he knew Judas was going to betray him. He knew who Judas was by nature that did not keep him from sharing the opportunity of repentance with him and serving Judas by washing his feet and serving him food. One commentator wrote, the very hands that would soon be pierced through with nails at this moment is stooping down to serve, washing even the feet of one of his enemies. And so church, as we look into our own life, as we look at our own service, do we make decisions on our service based on our bias of who is deserving and who is not? Or do we serve in a selfless way that we see in Christ here? Do we stray from having fellowship and dinner with sinners? Or do we reach out our lives to show the grace of God and plead with those around us what Christ has to offer? As we look at Jesus' example and see his selfless act of service in the midst of the climax of his purpose on earth, we've already explained that this meal was much more than just another Passover meal. This meal was more than simply the exodus of Egypt. This meal is the representation of the true lamb that is going to be sacrificed that was needed to bridge the gap between our sin and his righteousness. And in the middle of all of this going on, Jesus is serving his disciples and even his enemy. And so church, I encourage you, this is, this is not the part of the sermon where I'm going to encourage you to step up and, and help out with kids or anything like that. In fact, I would rather us not have any teams if that meant that you guys were serving in your communities with your neighbors, neighbors and at work and sharing the gospel. I'd rather not have any service at church. So I want to encourage you, if you are not serving other people in life with the intent of gospel work because the gospel is more important than anything else that we do in our life, start today. Use whatever it is that God has given you, if it's talents, if it's abilities, if it's money, if it's a house, if it's food, 
Use that for the gospel, to leverage the gospel. Serve those around you with the intent on not getting anything in return. The last theological point that we're going to see in the text here is a theological idea in which that God has multiple different wills. There has been a debate since the beginning of time on this matter. The idea of how can the will uh, of God be in sending people to hell and choosing who he wants to save. We see this idea of predestination in the Bible. We have this, this inner uh, fight as we think what's fair, what's not fair. We see text in John that says God so loved the world that he doesn't want anyone to perish but all come to repentance. But we see that not all is going to come to repentance. We see in Romans that we are dead in our sin and we see in Ephesians it's by grace through faith in Christ alone that we can't do anything in and of ourselves. And the hard part is how do we wrap our depraved minds around this? How do we reconcile this? And I think it comes to an understanding of the multiple different wills of God. And we see that take place in Jesus and Judas here. Look at the story. Over the last three years, Jesus chose Judas. Jesus loved Judas. He chose him to be one of the twelve, even though he knew what was going to happen. The accountant Luke as they explain the Passover, it says that Jesus eagerly awaited this meal to have fellowship with his disciples. When Jesus drops the bomb of betrayal, nobody immediately looked at Judas. Right? They were all, is it, is it I? Am I the one that's going to do it, Lord? It wasn't that like Judas was the worst of the twelve and they were like, well, saw that coming. Must be Judas. He's going to be the one that betrays us. You see that Jesus loved Judas, especially in the other texts, we see how he offered him time after time in the short meal repentance. But that does not mean that Judas received salvation. Other parts of scripture make it clear that Judas did not receive salvation. And so we see the great example here of the different wills that God has. Um, I've already told first service that Jeremy Barry is going to do a podcast on this. So if you're curious on what the three different wills are and, and how they take effect, um, be looking for a podcast soon, all right? But we're going we're gonna to talk about two of the three different wills that God has here in the story. So to explain this briefly, you have two different wills of God taking place at this time. You have God's decretive will. And what I mean by God's decretive will, think of creation. God says, light appear and light appears. That's just what it is. Whatever God decrees, it happens, if he says planets exist, planets exist. That is the decretive will of God that we see, that we're going to see here in the text. The second will that we see of God is his permissive will. This is where Judas falls into place. The permissive will is the idea that God is not responsible for the sin of people, although he has allowed our sin and our depraved hearts to choose wrong to accomplish his will. And by the way, if we are apart from Christ, the only thing that we choose is sin. And so let me explain what is not happening. It is not God's decreed of will that from the beginning of time, Judas Iscariot was going to betray him. God did not manipulate Judas to be the sole reason that Jesus gets crucified. What God's decreed of will, however, in the text is the fact that before the foundations of the world, God had decreed that his son was going to come and pay the price for many for the forgiveness of sins. That is going to happen. God decreed it. 
It says in the text, the Son of Man is to go just as it is written of him. The death of Christ is not in Judas's hands. What God said in Genesis 3 about the bruising of the head of the serpent, it will happen. What the psalmist wrote about the Messiah in Psalm 22, it is going to take place. What Isaiah said in chapter 53 is going to occur. God's plan from eternity was that Christ would be the Lamb of God, slain in God's decree from the beginning, even before the foundation of the world. The Westminster Confession states it in chapter 3, section 1, God from all eternity did by the most wise and holy counsel of his own will freely and unchangeably ordain whatsoever comes to pass. And we see God's permissive will in Judas and the fact that in our humanity, in our sin nature, he has allowed us to make decisions that go against his desire to go against his commandments. In his permissive will, he has allowed Judas to choose sin, to choose evil and selling him out. God does not intervene. He doesn't step in. He allows this to happen for his permissive will to take effect. As you think of these two different wills, it will help explain multiple parts of Scripture. Think of, think of Pilate. That is God's permissive will that he allowed Pilate to find him guilty. Could he have stepped in and the crucifixion never happened? Sure, he's God. He could have decreed whatever he wanted to happen. But in his permissive will, he allowed Pilate to find him guilty. He allowed Judas to betray him. Look at the story of Job and what all God permits to happen in the, in the life of Job. Look at the role of Absalom in the Jewish history. Look at the problem of evil. All of these are examples of God's permissive will to allow mankind to choose evil. The fact of the matter is that God did not want Judas to betray him. And we see that through this text and the text of the other Gospels. However, God allowed him to choose his sin, to choose evil, instead of stepping in and intervening. And to show that Jesus did not want Judas to betray him, let's look at what, what all Judas did. We see across the different accounts, the other Gospels, Jesus gave Judas time after time in this meal alone to repent. Through where he was positioned at in the table, close to Jesus, to have conversations through the evening. From the washing of his feet. During the text uh, in, the, in, in another book of the Bible, as it talks about Jesus washing the feet, he makes a statement that some of you are clean, but not all of you. This is to, 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 to cry out to Judas, hey, you know what you're going to do. Repent. I will give you forgiveness. One commentator wrote on the John 12, 23 through 26, says Peter asked John to ask Jesus who the betrayer was. John only had to turn his head as we know that John was, was beside Jesus and whisper, who is it? Jesus answered, it is the one to whom I will give this piece of bread when I have dipped it in the dish. Then dipping the piece of bread, he gave it to Judas Iscariot. The action of giving this bread in, in the culture of this day is an expression of love. In the culture to take, a, um, to take bread from the table and dip it in the common dish and offer it to another is a gesture of friendship. Look at the story of Ruth and Boaz. Ruth chapter 2, 14 says, He said to, Boaz, or to Ruth, Come over here, have some bread, and dip it in the wine vinegar. 
Jesus was reaching out to Judas time after time, quietly, intimately. Jesus was saying, in effect, Judas, here is my friendship and my forgiveness. All you have to do is take it. But we know the story. Judas did take it. But he took the bread without repentance. To share a meal like this in cold-blooded hypocrisy to betray a friend is treason. It was the ultimate act of treachery in this time to betray someone in which you would share a meal. In fact, today it's still true in the Middle East. And so as Judas takes it, John 13, 27 says, after, after the bread, Satan entered into him and Jesus said to Judas, what you must do, do quickly. And so church, as we look at Judas, and before we start pointing fingers at Judas, we are all in that same boat. If you are apart from Christ, you are no better than Judas. So church, if you have not accepted the grace that Christ has to offer, the forgiveness that he freely gives you, you are no better than Judas Iscariot. You come to church, whether it be weekly, monthly, once, twice a year, you hear the gospel, week in and week out. You are extended the offer of forgiveness and you turn it away. Look at the text as it explains about Judas. The text said it would be better if Judas would have never been born. The same is true for anyone who dies apart from Christ. If you die apart from grace, if you die in your sin, if you're not in Christ, you are going to pay by the merit of your own life whatever that punishment is and that punishment we see is eternal hell, separated from your loving creator forever. And so do not ignore the effectual call, the offer of Christ in your life. Don't come here week in and week out and ignore your need for grace. And by no means, do not do what Judas did. Do not come forward and take communion if you are not in Christ. Where we get the word communion is common union, and it's the fact that we celebrate a common union together as a local body, that we remember what Christ did for us. If you are in no Christ, if you are not in Christ, you have no common union with this local body. Do not take the bread and the juice. I beg you, church, if you have not received the grace and forgiveness Scripture says you are sons of disobedience, you are children of wrath. You need to repent of your sin and choose to follow Jesus. And I ask you, what are you waiting for? The band is going to come back up here in a minute. And we're going to read a confession like we do week in and week out. And we're going to enter into communion. What we celebrate that represents what Christ did for us. Just as they celebrated the Passover here in the text. Looking forward to what Christ had to offer. Church, we get to look back to the finished work of Christ. And we're reminded that there's nothing we have to do to partake in that meal. All we have to do is repent and believe in him. And so if you are still in your sin, I encourage you, repent to God this morning. There's not a special prayer that you have to pray. There's no special words. You don't need me. You don't need Jeremy. You don't need Will. You simply need faith granted by God to understand that you are absolutely nothing without him. 
And if God has given you that faith to believe him, turn and repent of your sin and trust in him. And so Christian, as we read the confession this morning, take time, repent of your own failures, repent of your lack of service in your life, repent of your lack of ability to live by God's law, by God's standards. And after you repent of your failures, come to the table rejoicing in the fact that you have been purchased and you have been bought by the blood of Christ. We hope you enjoyed the podcast. To learn more about New Heights Church or a relationship with Christ, please visit our website at www.newheightswv.com.